Testament scripture reading, which is found in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6, from verse 15 of that chapter. You will find, if you are a visitor, that there is a pew Bible in the rack in front of you, and the book of Nehemiah is found after the books of Kings and Chronicles in the Old Testament, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And we are reading in chapter 6 from verse 15. Now, you will have noticed this morning that there is a very extensive passage of Scripture that is set before us, the whole of the 73 verses of chapter 7. But I hasten to add that I am not going to read through uh, all of this lengthy passage, but we are going to take selected readings from it. Chapter 6 of Nehemiah from verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this and all the surrounding nations saw it, our enemies lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jehohanan, Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshullam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious and there were few people in it and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. And then you will notice there is a long list of families and of individuals. Now we are going to uh, take up Um, the reading at uh, verse 64. These, that is the few families that are mentioned immediately uh, prior to this verse in verse 63, these searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor, therefore, ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there should be a priest ministering with the Urim and Tumim. The whole company numbered 42,360, besides their 7,337 men servants and maidservants. 
and they also had 245 men and women singers. There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor, that is Nehemiah, gave to the treasurer a thousand drachmas of gold, fifty bowls, and five hundred and thirty garments for priests. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury for the work twenty thousand drachmas of gold, and two thousand two hundred miners of silver. The total given by the rest of the people was twenty thousand drachmas of gold, two thousand miners of silver, and sixty-seven garments for priests. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. To him. Now we are coming again this morning in our studies through Nehemiah to this great book and to chapter seven in particular. It is, I remind you, one of the most extensive accounts of biblical revival in the whole of the Scriptures, and this, in great measure, is why we are studying this book in these days. Because surely one of the great and paramount needs. Of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this age is to know the reviving power of God's Spirit in our midst, as it was known in the days of Nehemiah, where there was, I remind you, a revival so extensive that it touched every part of society. And as we've been going through this book on these Sunday mornings, we've been discovering together those great principles that God uses to revive and to renew His people. Such things as that, in a, the midst of a discouraging and depressing situation, when things may seem hopeless from a human point of view, God drives His people to the ministry of prayer. And the whole of this book, as we've been discovering together, is bounded in the ministry of fervent prayer and prevailing intercession with God. And we've seen that one of the great principles is that a work of God that is not founded in prayer will never prosper. And we've been discovering together that it's necessary to feel the hand of God upon us as we are in His service. So that no matter what obstacles and difficulty and opposition arise, and they arise from every quarter continually, it is the hand of God upon us that directs us to the solution to every obstacle, the way out of every difficulty, how to overcome every single oppressive thing that the enemy assaults the people of God with. And we've been seeing that it's necessary to persevere to the very end. If there was one hallmark of this man Nehemiah, it is his remarkable perseverance in the midst of circumstances where ordinary men would long ago have given up altogether. And so last Sunday we came to that great passage where you remember all the antagonism and opposition of Satan was focused in. 
upon one man, the strategic figure Nehemiah himself, whereby flattery and by slander and by the fear of men and finally by an attack upon this man of God's discernment of God's will, Satan sought to thrust him out of the plan and purposes of God. And we came at the end of chapter 6 last Sunday morning to the account of the wall being finished. Now that is where I want to take up with you this morning. In only 52 days, you notice in verse 15 of chapter 6, the wall was completed in something like seven weeks. And it was a truly remarkable accomplishment. The whole time span, in fact, from Nehemiah first receiving the message of his people's need through to the completion of the wall was only six months. And it must rank as one of the most remarkable six months in the whole history of God's own people. But in 52 days, the wall was finally completed. And no wonder the effect was upon the enemies of God's people that they stood in amazement and they recognized that this could only have been accomplished because the hand of God was in this venture. And so it was the end, in a sense, of phase one. But what I want you to notice is this, that as the chapter 6 concluded, there is evidence that while phase 1 is ending, phase 2 of Nehemiah's work is only beginning. And I think it's vitally important for us to grasp this as we begin to understand the significance of that obscure chapter, chapter 7. Because you will have noticed with me in reading through the end of chapter 6 that in verses 17 through 19, there is indication that Nehemiah's task is by no means over. And these verses relate that though the wall was, ac was accomplished and was built, nevertheless there was a work to be done, not in the city itself now, but among the citizens. And so the focus, you see, is moving from the city to the citizens, from the walls that encompass Jerusalem to the inhabitants that live inside those walls. And what is happening is that evidently there is a threat now from within Jerusalem and not simply a threat from without that was dealt with by the finishing of the building of the walls. It is the picture in these verses of a nobility corresponding with the enemy, establishing a fifth column, if you like, within Jerusalem itself. It is the picture of people who are under oath to Tobiah the Ammonite, presumably through some business contracts of theirs that were in place long before Nehemiah appeared on the scene. They were business partners, if you like, of Tobiah the Ammonite. They had contracts to fulfill, oaths to keep. And there had been intermarriage between Tobiah, the enemy of God's people, and some of the Jews themselves. They were interrelated. 
And this fifth column, evidently, according to verse 19 of chapter 6, that was loyal to Tobiah, was receiving correspondence from him and reporting it to Nehemiah and reporting what Nehemiah said about the activities of Tobiah. In other words, you see, my dear friends, the picture is that Nehemiah dare not sit in the shadow of the completed walls of Jerusalem, the success of his projects. But he needed to go on to a further work of building a God-centered community life as well to deal with the problems inside the city, the problems of the citizens, from the city to the citizens. And this is why I believe we need to look at what would otherwise appear to be a very obscure passage of God's word, chapter 7. You may have read it and scratched your head and said, well, what on earth can a chapter like this say to us? And the answer, I believe, is that it says at least three very powerful and necessary things concerning the building of a God-centered community. And it speaks to us in the church life today. We should be a God-centered community. And the question as we go through these things is quite simply, are these the hallmarks of our life together as a people of God? Is the work of building the community going on amongst us? as it was evidently going on among the people to whom Nehemiah so wonderfully ministered again. Now there are three things to which I direct your attention. There is competent leadership. And secondly, there is godly discipline. And thirdly, there is generous stewardship. And all of these three are necessary ingredients in building a God-centered community. Now, first of all, there is the delegating of competent leadership in order to maintain watchfulness. And you have that in the first three verses of chapter 7. Look at them again for a moment. They seem very mundane and very ordinary. There is the appointment of Hanani. Nehemiah's brother to a place of responsibility as the civil governor of Jerusalem. And then there is the man with the similar name, Hananiah, who is evidently the military governor of Jerusalem, who is appointed to take charge of the citadel of Jerusalem. And then you read of Levites or priests being appointed and singers, and that is very unusual. And then you find that the ordinary citizens of Jerusalem are given a task by Nehemiah in the defense of the city from external attack. It's a picture of delegating competent leadership in the face of threat in order to maintain a constant vigilance and watchfulness. And it indicates Nehemiah's spiritual maturity in discerning the situation, doesn't it? You see, what would you and I have done in those circumstances? We might well have said, oh, this is a time of ease. 
Our work is done. God has blessed us. Even our enemies are saying, the hand of God is upon this people, and we cannot resist them. And there was a temptation to rest on his laurels. Beloved, do you remember what happened when David did just that? As recounted in the book of Samuel, when there was peace in his kingdom at last, when most of his wars were fought, it was in the time of ease that the greatest danger came in David's life. When he saw a woman bathing and lusted after her and took Bathsheba as his wife, and it led to adultery and then to murder of Bathsheba's husband. And in one fell swoop, four of the commandments of God fell like skittles in a bowling ring. The time of ease is a time of danger. And it says much for the spiritual maturity of Nehemiah. But instead of resting on his laurels, he discerned what was really the situation in Jerusalem that there was still an enemy who would be persistent. And that enemy would attack now from within. And the only answer to that enemy is constant vigilance and never-failing watchfulness. That he had come to a place, you see, not of rest, if you like, in his Christian experience, but a place where progress was still necessary. And that's what we need to remember. Perhaps you've reached that place in your Christian life where you have begun to rest and take things easy. My dear friend in Christ, be very careful because the place of ease is most often the place of greatest danger. Now, do you notice particularly that he does three things? He appoints... First of all, his brother Hanani into the place of civil governor. Now, you might say as you read that verse with me that this is a classical case of political nepotism, the practice of putting one of your own relatives in a very lucrative position. Well, of course, you might on the surface believe that that was in fact what was happening. But not for a moment do I believe that that was true. He put this man in that place of influence because it was Hanani, you remember, who brought the original message to Nehemiah in the palace of Susa concerning the great need in Jerusalem. And from that we may learn that Hanani was a man of God, a man whose heart bled for the condition of God's people who cried out that something must be done. And he took that message to Nehemiah, knowing that Nehemiah of all men was in a position to do something about the broken down walls of Jerusalem and the discouraged people of God. And he evidently loved and feared God. And remember, too, that in the midst of a situation where there was great danger from the fifth column in Jerusalem, it was most important that the civil governor of that city was a man who could be trusted, who feared God more than he feared men. And along with Hananiah, you notice he appointed Hananiah 
And it's very significant that this military governor, whom you might think would trust in his arsenal of weapons, the swords and the spears and the shields, and the soldiers that he trained on the training ground, you find that instead his trust is in a very different place. But it's said of Hananiah in verse 2 that he remembered the Lord and he feared the Lord more than most men do. Now isn't that significant? That the qualifications for office that Nehemiah looked for were those of a person who stands more in awe of God than he stands in awe of men who acknowledges the greatness and the awesomeness of God. Because the word fear there in verse 2 is the same word that's used in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, where Nehemiah says, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And it's the same word fear. The awesomeness of God is the horizon to which these these men's thinking steadily moves. The city administrators had an exalted view of God. And beloved, isn't it a crying need of our own day in the political arena here in the United States that we should be looking for men of integrity as these two men were? We should be looking for political leaders who reverence God more than they regard the cries and the clamant claims of men. And you know, if we only saw men of this quality and caliber in the political arena of our day, how different would be the national life of this country. And it's an exhortation to us to pray that God in his sovereignty would raise up more and more members of Senate and presidents of this great nation who might have this view and vision of the awesomeness of God. And in the church we should be praying continually that God would raise up individuals who possess these very qualifications, who are men who fulfill the requirements of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Qualifications which summed up say that these men live in the sight of God and trust him and go by what he says more than every other consideration in life. But do you notice, secondly, in this delegation of leadership, that he enumerates their responsibilities. He just doesn't just put them there. He enumerates their responsibilities. Normal community life at last is being restored in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah realizes that Hananiah and Hananiah alone as two men cannot possibly accomplish this great task. So he tells them, put the priests or the Levites in place and the singers in place and the gatekeepers who were a kind of security police who not only manned the gates but also patrolled the miles of unprotected walls. And then he says to the ordinary citizens, you have a place as well in defending the city 
Be at your posts or near your own homes and houses because there is a danger of enemy infiltration and enemy attack. And you see, this says something to us, surely. But there is ceaseless vigilance required in the Christian life and warfare. You know, it's a very beautiful picture, isn't it, of the need for that vigilance. Normally, in an ancient city, the gates of the city would be opened at sunrise. They would be closed at sunset. But what Nehemiah says there in these verses is that the gatekeepers are to wait until the sun is fully risen. It's up in the sky. Then open the gates. And they're to bar them again long before nightfall comes. Why? Because of the dangers from without. The need for ceaseless and extraordinary vigilance in this time. They are to be opened later and they are to be closed earlier. And are we not told in our new covenant scriptures of the necessity to be watchful and vigilant because our enemy, like a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may devour. Be self-controlled, says Peter. Be alert. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. And was it not the great apostle Paul who says to us in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against heavenly powers, the powers of darkness, spiritual evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take unto ourselves the whole armor of God that we may be able to resist him and having done all to stand or to hold our ground in the evil day. There is a ministry of delegating responsible leadership to maintain watchfulness, a vital ingredient in maintaining a godly Christian community. Now, secondly, do you notice from this chapter in the long section, verses 4 through 69, that Nehemiah is emphasizing godly discipline in order to maintain spiritual maturity, godly Discipline is the second ingredient. Now you may again have scratched your head and said, well, why are all these names listed here? But the purpose is an important principle. The preservation of spiritual purity by godly discipline. You notice that Nehemiah in verse 5 has not just thought up this idea on his own. He's not just said, well, it would be good to provide some real work for the bureaucrats in Jerusalem. Let's conduct a census and find who's going to live in the city. Oh, no. In verse 5, he says, the Lord gave it to me. The Lord put it into my mind to conduct a census at this time. And you know, it's remarkable about this man. He's one of the most outstanding examples in all of Scripture of a man who practiced the presence of God, to use the words of Brother Lawrence, 
Wherever you turn in this book, from chapter 1 right through the end, you find But the Lord is directing this man in his thinking and in his actions. Whether it's in the midst of enemies, whether he's in prayer, he says, Lord, give me favor in the sight of this man, Artaxerxes. When his name is being slandered, he says, Lord, deal with these enemies. And when he's in the midst of an internal threat, the Lord puts it into his mind. Because he practices the presence of God. And the purpose, you see, of this census is not simply to encourage the Israelites to begin to live in Jerusalem again by finding who they've got and being able to appoint them to live in different unpopulated sections of the city. That was one important purpose of it. But the really important purpose of it was this that they might establish the true bloodline, the Israelites' birthright, to check their ancestral purity in order to preserve the spiritual purity of God's people. Because the interesting and most significant thing about this long list, as we read part of it, is that some of the people had intermarried with unbelievers, And they could not show their ancestral birthright. And even in the case of some of the priests, through intermarriage, they had lost the right to minister in holy things. And for the spiritual welfare of God's people, it was necessary to practice a godly discipline. If I can illustrate it in this way, if you want to read Psalm 87 when you go home from this service, you find that it's a psalm that illustrates the glory and privilege of having a birthright in Zion. Those born in Zion, this one and that one, says the psalm, was born in her and the Most High himself will establish her. And it goes on to speak of the spiritual privilege of being a son and daughter of Zion. Now we know with the full revelation of the new covenant that it's not physical ancestry anymore that matters. It's spiritual birthright through the work of the Spirit of God in our lives and regeneration making us citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And the name of those heavenly citizens is registered in the Lamb's Book of Life. But under the old covenant, it was so necessary to prove your ancestral birthright as a son and daughter of Abraham in the line of the covenant and the covenant promises. And some failed. Verse 61, look at it. Those people who could not prove their ancestry. Verses 64 and 65, the names of the priests who had intermarried with unbelievers. And it says this to us. What of spiritual purity in the godly community today? It's a vital matter 
Yet in so many churches, my dear friends, how alien this thought is, isn't it? That we need to exercise church discipline. You know, when we look at our seminaries, that's where it begins, isn't it? Where we have professors that teach in some of the major denominations, thankfully not in ours. But the whole of the Bible is not, after all, God's word, but only parts of it. And I determine, finally, what is God's word and what isn't on the criteria that are acceptable to me. And students training for the gospel ministry grow up in their theological education with views that are contrary to the word of God itself. And they deny the miraculous and the supernatural. And they come to scripture with the scissors and paste method of taking out and adding in. And that's where the process of declension begins. And that's where we need to see church discipline exercised. But those who do not believe the word of God, who do not believe the deity of Christ, who cannot accept his resurrection, who will not live under the authority of God, should be put out of the seminary and out of the ministry. But then from there it flows into our congregations. What of discipline in church membership? Are we not living, beloved, in days of relaxed standards of church membership? Why do we have a class that lasts two months or more to prepare people, even though they're already members of another denomination, for membership in this church? Because we can take nothing for granted. To the elders is given the custodianship of the purity of a godly community. And in the leadership standards, we who are elders and deacons of our congregation need continually to examine ourselves in the light of God's word. Are we living disciplined lives? Is our spiritual ancestry, if you like, pure in the sight of God? Are we living in obedience to his revealed words? Is there evidence of spiritual rebirth and the fruits that accompany it? Beloved, we're living in days, alas, when many congregations say regarding church discipline, ah, oh, such and such a person is indeed living with unrepented sin. Yet because it's private and not in the public sector, we'll do nothing about it. And I want to remind you, but our reformers taught us biblically that one of the three distinguishing marks of a true church of God is not only that the word of God is properly preached, but that godly discipline is effectively exercised and that the sacraments are properly dispensed. And we should have a zeal for godly discipline in order to maintain spiritual purity. Now the third thing, as I close, that we learn surely from this passage is in the concluding verses, verses 70 to 73, that generous stewardship is necessary to maintain the godly community. 
what a vital part of phase two of Nehemiah's work this is. But those who work in the temple should be adequately provided for. Because, you see, I believe that these offerings that are listed were not offerings that were taken for the work of the wall. They were taken for the work of phase two. Not for the city, but for the well-being of the citizens. And primarily because of the reference to bowls and to garments for the priests in large numbers, it's evident that what is being practiced here is what we call today Christian stewardship. And one of the vital ingredients, beloved, for a godly community, as it glorifies God, is that there should be the practice of generous stewardship. And you notice that Nehemiah sets a most inspiring example yet again by his generosity. In chapter 4, we learned how he gave meals to so many people in his home in time of famine and social and economic distress and supported so many of the workers on the wall. But now he gives the equivalent of 19 pounds of gold, a fortune then and a fortune now, and 50 bowls, and 530 priestly garments. And his example is immediately followed by the heads of families who give large and generous gifts to the work of God. And you notice after seven weeks of the loss of labor and income, and after many hardships and difficulties and disappointments and discouragements, they were people of a generous heart. Someone has said that your own godliness is only as deep as your hand goes into your pockets. And I believe there's a great deal of truth in that statement. But does not the New Testament reinforce that principle of stewardship for us? That generosity in God's people is essential for the well-being of the church. Didn't the Apostle Paul put it so beautifully in 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9? Let me quote to you what he says. Out of the most severe trial, he says, of the Macedonian church, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify they gave what? As much as they were able. And even beyond their ability, are you and I willing to do that? He that sows sparingly, says the apostle in the same passage, reaps sparingly. And he that sows generously, reaps generously. And each man should give what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves the cheerful giver. I want to ask you this morning, is this one of your priorities as you are a member of this congregation? Did you realize that your stewardship is a vital ingredient in the spiritual health of this congregation? Do you think day by day of the economic hardship of many on the mission field, sometimes in the pastorate, in the PCA, 
of many great Christian works and causes that because of the stinginess of God's people are limited in the way that they can serve the Lord Jesus. And our offerings should emulate the offerings of these old covenant saints and advance the cause and kingdom of our Lord and Savior. And so I finish. Is this not a wonderful passage as we see it now? Competent leadership, godly discipline, generous stewardship. And may it be the prayer of all our hearts that these marks will be writ large in our lives here in Westminster. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're very thankful this morning for these insights into the word of God, and we pray that we may take them with us not for a moment merely, nor an hour over lunch, but through the coming days of this week, may we marvel indeed that all scripture is inspired of God, and every part of it, rightly understood, is instructive for us as people of that new covenant of grace. In Christ our Lord. Amen.